Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today we're talking about scapegoating. So I've been thinking a lot about Trump's obsessiveness with tweeting 24-7 and the way in which his tweets are an attempt to fix a particular version of post-truth ideology in America's mind and on its news feeds. And I'm thinking a lot about how Trump uses the internet as a psychological sort of defense mechanism against accountability and the way in which he, since he was inaugurated, has blamed other groups for his own corruption, his own failures, his inadequacies, his lies, his cover-ups. And I'm thinking about it as emblematic of whiteness and of structures of whiteness rather than as like a personality flaw in him and only a personality flaw in him. Like, I don't think he's just a sociopath. I think he is the sociopath in charge, (laughs) you know? And I think that his obsessive tweeting is a good way of thinking about scapegoating as a national ritual of assessing blame and avoiding accountability. What do you think about that? I think we're in a dangerous moment because Donald Trump is able to direct blame about his own decision-making and also situations that are uh, a lot more complex than he makes them out to be. We allow him to displace blame and it's people believe it. So like, it's not just him, like, because in a normal circumstance, like he could point a finger and then there would be fallout. People don't care. Uh, it's this like good old boy culture where like if this man isn't held accountable, um, then also we don't have to be held accountable. And also in the case of like white nationalists, this agenda that like has some force behind it now because this man is legitimizing it. Um, and what's most dangerous about it is that the truth doesn't matter. Or the complexity doesn't matter. Like the easy answer that this cultural group is to blame or this religious minority is to blame for. Like these cop-outs, not only do they ignore the problem at hand and allow it to like continue and grow unfettered, um, but they create more problems and divisive politics that are going to be a problem going forward for a very long time. I mean, look, it's always been here. It's not like the neo-Nazis have been like, you know, not around. They are emboldened, but I think it's, I want to talk about why. It's not just that he's just like white power, right, in subtle and moreover ways. It is that he's articulating a kind of subjectivity for white men that articulates itself as victim while it is being the perpetrator. So Trump is constantly the victim of witch hunts and, um, in his words, and um, unfair accusations and smears and, right, there is this denial of both form and content and then a projection of strength 
that is so bellicose and so caricatured that it is reproducing itself in this sort of cancerous way. Like the cells are multiplying in, um, in ways that we can't see yet. It's so fast and so venal that as he articulates blame for other people and tries to distance himself from accountability, he's reinforcing that rhetorical maneuver for all of the most violent white perspectives in the country. Yeah, and it's working because whatever mm-hmm. he says can just be true because he says it is. Yes. And because facts don't matter, anyone's version of the truth can be legitimate. It's a problem. And I and also like he's uh you know allowed to just say that he's accomplishing what he said he would deliver on, like rebuilding infrastructure or investing in like job regrowth. He can just say he's doing that, even if there's no material evidence to support that. And people don't care (laughs) whether it's true or not. And especially because he's creating these like other enemies like China. And even though the policy of these tariffs against China actually uh, messes up the supply chain in a way that affects people's jobs. I mean, I don't know that he's really creating enemies. I think everybody sees that the emperor has no clothes. Okay, I don't think that there are true believers. I think that that is how white supremacy reproduces itself through these extremely convoluted narratives and assertions and projections and denials. It's like a circus (laughs) watching this shit unfold. So I I think everybody sees that the emperor has no clothes including his own supporters, and certainly the adult people in Congress, right? They know that the emperor has no clothes. They just think that they're going to make out more by sticking close to him than breaking off. That's a calculation, you know, of uh, about personal greed. But I don't know that that people are true believers and don't know. Like, slaveholders knew that slaves were people, right? And so they created all this elaborate architecture to justify the assertion that slaves were not. They knew. I mean, that's what scapegoating is. It's a part of that architecture to reinforce your worldview. And to... Enrich yourself. And to avoid accountability of any kind. (laughs) But especially political accountability. Certainly white accountability. Right? And definitely cis-hetero, you know, accountability. So, you know, this post-truth moment is very troubling from... A communication perspective because it's reinforcing some really fucking heinous habits about narrativizing the self, the nation, politics, other countries, other people, um, the non-self. I mean, it's, it's so insidious that way, the scapegoating, and especially about who he's been scapegoating. Right? Like, it started with Hillary Clinton, who, you know, obviously I'm not a huge fan of. But, I mean, it started scapegoating her as a symbol of all women. And then the Muslim ban and the wall and Mexicans and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's so, it's such vapid, empty discourse, but it has such social cachet. 
And that's the danger, I think, of scapegoating as a trope of post-truth is that it's it's so dangerous it's a hammer even though everybody's aware that it's bullshit. And it provides no structural diagnosis to actually address the issues that are underlying these problems. Why are we so focused on resenting other people who are in like a similar situation? Like they're put in the same situation as us by our economic system. And instead of representing that, like resenting that system that put us in that position, we resent other people who are in the same position as us. So I feel like our frustration is misdirected. And then the problem that's really at hand doesn't get solved. Like, why are we not trying to grow the pie rather than hoard more of what little we have? Because we have shitty labor politics (laughs) because of slavery and racism. So there's, it's a failure of imagination and it's also deeply seated racism that white people don't want to share with people of color. That's the fundamental rub, right? And so they don't want to share. They don't want to build with. They want to build against. They feel like the only way that they feel good about themselves is to work against and then they self-loathe and hate themselves and are alienated and violent, right? I mean, you don't see black folks shooting up fucking churches and schools and stuff. They're not black mass shooters. It's not a thing. Why is that? Because they are not alienated in the way that white people are snow jobbing themselves about their own merit when they're mediocre as fuck and pretending to be in charge of all the things. And so... Trump's, you know, state, like the media likes to speculate on it as mental break. And I see why mental health advocates get up in arms about that, whether it's the slurring or speculation about medicines or whatever. And I get why they're like, don't speculate. You know, there are people who really have disorders or who benefit from therapy. And I'm in on that tip, right? I get that. But on the other hand, the problem is that is that there, there is a hundred years of scholarship and theory about white supremacy as a mental illness, as a dissociative personality disorder that produces scapegoating and denial and blame and, you know, and these cycles of redemption and transference that are about the nation state, that are larger than therapeutic interventions about an individual and are much more about structures of power and how they become articulated as as a national ideal via, let's say, the presidency. So I feel two ways about thinking about scapegoating as a psychological practice in the political realm, one that has therapeutic consequences as a psychiatric practice, and then the other that is absolutely about struggling to demystify how alienation and psychic conversion create turmoil inside of white people as they brutalize others, you know? I mean, it may be largely psychological, but white supremacy has etched itself in real institutions. Yes, material. That have legal <laughs> implications and, like actually affect people's lives like our incarceration most of the justice system has deep racist influence i mean the notion of crime is about anti-blackness the entire criminal code is basically about how to penalize black people for being black not because crime is a real thing 
you know, and if you're going to hold an ent entire populations of people outside of the economy, the only way to survive is through quote-unquote crime, which is fundamentally about criminalizing blackness as a way of erasing black being. So, I mean, I think it's actually quite germane to talk about Trump and his mental state as a product and as reproducing white supremacy as a mental disorder, as a an infatuation with a particular kind of violent power that is fucking unhealthy, you know, that is neurotic in the clinical sense, in you know, as a political neurosis. It's about hoarding and holding power, right? regardless of the consequences, regardless of the speech or the actions or the ethics or the truth yeah. of the thing. But we're having, like, laws that are being generated during this time that are that are a direct result of scapegoating. Yes. Like, I'm talking about abortion. There is a scapegoating... Uh, blame onto women about their morals and where the underlying issue is the control of bodies. Are you saying that women don't get pregnant through iatrogenesis by themselves? <laughs> Are you suggesting that there is a distribution of accountability that might look different than that model? Because I hear you saying that. <laughs> I hear you intimating that. This is like has implications for years and decades and like on so many bodies. Yeah. I mean, I think that when you see scapegoating, it's a clear signal that a bunch of unequal unjust shit is happening to historically marginalized people. And it's fundamentally about hoarding wealth and citizenship rights as a way of controlling populations so that they have no access to mobility in the culture. It's a caste. Scapegoating is a means of maintaining caste. You know? I mean, even in a, I don't know, quote-unquote democracy, that is the way that we maintain rigid separation between the wealthy and the poor. And, you know, it also happens through gaslighting. So I think scapegoating and gaslighting go together as rhetorical features of you know, white supremacy as nationalism, as nation, as nationhood, as national symbol, as masculinity. But also it's like everybody's watching this Soleimani stuff go down and there was no provocation, there was no threat, there was no military threat. I mean, it's completely fucking it fabricated. Symbolic. Yeah, it was 100% symbolic. There was no material reality to the thing whatsoever that justified the use of force. And it backfired. And so the narrative in the interim has been completely fucking incoherent. Same thing is true about Ukraine. I mean, it is like watching the most bizarro, I don't know, magical realist, like magical realist adaptation of the presidency. It's so wild because it's so... Uh, much about denying the reality that people are seeing. And I think that more important than the laws is that it's training people to not trust what they see and it's delegitimizing the narratives of people who are most 
harmed by the administration from actually articulating their own stories about how the harm is unfolding. And the most vulnerable, of course, are the kids that have been stolen and shoved into these fucking concentration camps at the border and stolen away. And, I mean, they're totally being sex trafficked and they're being stolen. And it's like we're just pretending that's not happening. I don't understand how the Democratic candidates are just, like, camped out at the border at these concentration camps trying to liberate these kids. It's hard for me to stomach, like, the part where... Um, Trump gets to take responsibility for the good things that are happening, the positives, like the good economy. I mean, I've been very clear that I don't think the economy is good. No. But, you know, in terms of, like, the market uh, inaccurate measures that we typically use to uh, uh, fabricate about, yeah. <laughs> financial right. future. Um, so even if, like, all of that were true, like, the economy were truly good, and worked for a lot of people. Like, just because of that, we ignore all of, like, the structural damage. Atrocities? Let's <laughs> just like, call them atrocities. Uh, yes. So, like, that is what's hardest for me to bear. And that's, like, an accountability thing where you take credit when things are good. Like, oh, I'm responsible for, like, all of the good that happens. But any uh, type of criticism, you're it's someone else's fault or, like... It's because of market forces or, or you just lie in general. Like yeah. I, that didn't even happen. That thing you're saying that's supported by actual evidence or data um, is not true because I say it's not true. But it's producing mobbing, right? And so it's like national mobbing where people sort of circle the wagons and bully. Like the, the president is a bully and there's part of the expectation that the president should be a bully that has historically been part of the presidency because it's always been white and masculine. We call it the bully pulpit for a reason. Um, and But there is this sense that he is waging this singular campaign of like psychological terror. Right, that is what he's doing, and then and and then it is allowing and justifying and excusing and and producing mobs, right? Not just like the Charlottesville tiki torch fuckers, but also in workplaces and in families and and people who are organizationally different or familially different then become the targets, and it's amplifying i think mobbing as a response to perceived harm that's not real and that happens because trump articulates himself as a victim when really he's a perpetrator you know of atrocity and crime and i think that's what whiteness does is that it produces itself as simultaneous victim and perpetrator where someone else is scapegoated or a group is scapegoated for the violence that white people are producing in the culture writ large. And that is terrible. Mobbing, like as, as the mob, right, as the Italian mob or the mafia, that happens when people are structured out of the economy, out of the formal economy, right? So you are going to have densely knit toxic groups of bullies trying to navigate late capital and this survival mentality and the overwork mentality and the merit mentality and then just like crushing wages and stagnant workplace culture yeah it's like how are we not better than this by now like Mm. it's like a very um it's very intellectually lazy 
to behave that way. It's like you're yes. adhering to your base, like yes. monkey brain. I yes. don't mean to be like essentialist about it, but you're adhering to some like monkey brain impulse where you get like a rush of dopamine if you have social power over someone. Um, so like assigning blame and pointing fingers feels very good, but you ignore like the situations that surround people. I mean, the fact of the matter is it's cognitively easier to blame somebody else than to reform the self. So that's why people do it. So it's lazy in one sense, but also, you know, I'm always trying to have a generous reason. People don't have tools. And even when they do to have tools, they don't always do better. Right? Because, and especially in this kind of political climate, there's no call to do better. Nobody is saying we should be better people. And Jimmy Carter tried that after Watergate, and America's like, we're not greedy, we're not trashy, we're terrible. And then they elected Reagan, who just flattered them and scapegoated, and he was all Mr. Transcendence, like, right? Like, sitting on a hill, bullshit, even while he was, you know, white supremacing really hard. So, I just, I don't think that there, this is not an accountability culture at all. It's very young and naive emotionally and spiritually, and the people cannot hear critique. They're so fragile. They cannot manage it. And by the people, I mean the people in charge. By the people in power charge, I mean the white people. They cannot handle critiques at all. Or if they can, they know it's inconvenient and they stifle it. Yes. So, yeah. I mean. That's correct. Some things are above critique. There are, there are things that are easy to scapegoat, and they are not structural issues that support power. Like anything that supports power, like carbon emission, like pollution, polluting, like all of that is above critique, even though it's clearly responsible yes. for the climate crisis that we're in now. Yes. But like Australia is on fire and the prime minister will not admit that the fact that Australia's main export is it's coal, coal. <laughs> is... Uh, part of what has played in to the environmental devastation there. So it's like, if you want to point a finger, like that one is obvious and we don't. So, and in fact, we like scapegoat scientists <laughs> for like... Documenting uh, yeah. the facts of the matter. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what gets me is like, it's above anyone who uh, wants to maintain power is like above accountability. And that scapegoating is a very easy way to circumvent um, accountability. I think Carlos Ghosn mm-hmm. escaping from yes. Japan, like as a very salient example of escaping count- accountability and using scapegoating as um, justification for it. So first of all, he thought he was above accountability because he, uh, he turned around Mitsubishi or whatever, which like, Again, you get to claim credit for all of the success, even though like anyone at all, probably who came into Mitsubishi and restructured the workforce probably would have had good results. I mean, also it was a giant financial bailout. It's just like we Iacocca. If the federal government gives you a bunch of motherfucking money to save your industry, they are giving you corporate welfare so that you can't fail. The point is that you get so many resources that you can't fail. Yeah. So it was not his singular ability no. as a leader that it was responsible no, 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 no. for. It. So, but he thought that, you know, or he was able to claim that. And our mythical treatment of the CEO as like some kind of icon of like equated with like a religious figure or like a genius. Um, so 
he thought he was uh, didn't have to be accountable for those reasons. But also, you know, he just left. He could leave. Uh, like, because he said that he would not receive fair treatment because he was Lebanese. And that there was a nationalist reason to imprison him. And he wouldn't get a fair trial. And maybe that's true. I'm not, like, I would say most people who go through any kind of justice system don't get a fair shake. Sure, sure. <laughs> For the most part. So I'm not defending uh, institutions of justice as an enforcer of accountability. But um, I don't like, you know, where you just get to escape because you decide that you're not responsible. I mean, the carceral does not end corruption. So, like, having prisons is not a deterrent. There's no deterrent effect. Deterrence is bullshit. I understand that people occasionally want retribution for things, but it would be better to create a more connected culture where the accountability process was distributed more widely and in more varied ways so that it's not just about criminal things where the accountability happens on the back end. It's a preventative instead of a, you know, a back end sort of consequence. And so, I mean, that's the interesting thing about this impeachment moment, right? Because all the liberals are frothing like there's going to be some accountability, which of course there's not. And more than anything, the impeachment, I think, interrupts the narrative of scapegoating and it disrupts the denial and projection in a way that is potentially very productive. Um, that isn't to say that Trump doesn't continue to scapegoat. He does. But it undercuts his ability to do so because now there's, there are all of these actors who are involved in re-narrativizing the blame on him and his administration officials for their corruption. You know, I think that the impeachment moment is an interesting narrative correction. I think Pelosi's decision to not send over the articles is brilliant. It increases the pressure on him. It gives him more time to spin out and make mistakes. Uh, it really does, I think, shift the balance of power about who is controlling the narrative in a way that is really, really productive. Um, but that man's not going to jail, so people need to get their heads straight about it. That is not going to be an outcome here. I do think that the buzz in Washington right now is that he's going to resign. Uh, and people think that he will do it in the late spring, which I find very difficult to believe, but I think is more plausible than any kind of vote in the Senate that would vote to convict. In an election year, I, I don't see him resigning, especially see if how. the Republicans don't uh, circulate a viable um, option, electable candidate. Um, but I do like the publicity around this impeachment because I think it, um, exposes a lot of the partisanship, um, uh -huh. that's happening at, in multiple levels of the government. And that partisanship has, um, taken over the separation of powers. And, you know, I think in the last impeachment and like the Clinton trial, there was like some kind of like illusion of bipartisanship where the like Senate majority leader and the minority leader worked together to legitimize the fact that they were going to have a fair and unbiased trial, which was not true. And it's not true in this case either, but they're not even trying to legitimize it. Like Mitch McConnell has made no 
No, the quite the illusion. opposite. Yeah. Yeah. And so I like the exposure to that. Like it, I mean, to me, any decision that's made is cheapened. Yeah. Because we know that the fair and unbiased part <laughs> is like a non-starter. I guess. I mean, I'm just curious about what happens to the notion of any kind of political integrity at all. I would just be curious. I, I can't even predict because I just, I don't know that corruption is a winner as a framework right now in this moment. Uh, because the scapegoating is so heavy. I don't know that integrity or accountability are going to drive the electorate. Yeah, it's too soon to tell. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I'm interested in how the Democratic primary shakes out because, you know, that has come up in, like, the wine cave. Like, <laughs> yeah, Pete Buttigieg is going to be beholden to, like, his wealthy donors. Does the public stand, or does anyone who gets a Democratic ballot, are they comfortable with that? Like, I, I mean, I think I mean, we'll see. Sanders. Joe Biden is completely compromised. Completely. And the fact that the Ukraine stuff, some of it centers on Hunter Biden, I think, really makes it hard for him to win. I don't care about his name recognition. He's a garbage person. He'll be, he'll be a garbage president. McConnell will dunk on him. He can't win. Joe Biden is, he is like, I think, um, a representative of Democrats scapegoating Donald Trump, actually. Yeah. Like, Placing all of the problems on Trump himself Correct. as an actor instead of the institution. Completely agree.